Turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. Hopeful waiting. Sometimes you wonder, sometimes you look at all the sadness and all the sickness and all the sinfulness and you ask, why doesn't God do something? Is he not all powerful? Could he not stop the madness, the pain, the sickness, the sorrow? How cruel God seems sometimes. If he has the ability to fix it all, and we all believe that he does, and yet he refuses to do something, is he not cruel? Leaving his own people in a state of sorrow, a state of loss, a state of sin? God, you're not listening. God, you're not acting. God, where are you when we need you the most? Does God, does God really keep his promises? Has he not promised that he will never forsake his children? Has he not promised to always be faithful to those who are his own? C.S. Lewis, the author of A Grief Observed, if you know that book and you know C.S. Lewis, probably the most brilliant Christian writer of the 20th century. He wrote it after the death of his wife, Joy Davidman. Joy Davidman had been a secular Jew, an atheist, a communist, and she came to know faith in Christ through the writings of Lewis. And then to be close to him, she picked up and moved with her two teenage sons to England and she served as his private secretary while he taught at Oxford. When Lewis and Davidman were married, as I understand it, there was no romance involved. They were in a hospital room and the reason that Lewis married Joy was to assure her that if she died of cancer, he could legally now take care of her two teenage boys. But as God would have it, there was a remission of the cancer. And Joy Davidman came back to life. And C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman were actually married a second time in the Church of England ceremony. They enjoyed several wonderful years together. And then, and then as suddenly as the disease had stopped, it started all over again. And after a painful period of illness, Joy Davidman died. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant Christian writer, in order to come to grips with his grief, he kept journals of all of his feelings and those journals became the basis of the book, A Grief Observed. The book was first published under a pseudonym, a fake name, N.W. Clerk, because Lewis didn't want those who followed him to realize that his faith was that thin and, and that shaky and he was, well, that upset with God. And so it wasn't until his death in 1963 that the book ever bore the name, as my copy does, C.S. Lewis. If you know the book, you know the pages are shrill and harsh. 
You see, C.S. Lewis had certain expectations of how, how God would work in his life. And when those expectations were not fulfilled, he became angry and confused and even, I would say, somewhat hostile. As was Lewis's custom, he eventually turned from his expectations of God to his experience of God. At the end of the book, Though the skies are still laden in gray, there is a ray of hope at the end of the book as he works through his relationship with God. There are moments in that journal when during his worst grief, he cries out like a psalmist does, like they do here in Isaiah 40, God, do you remember me? God, why don't you do something? He writes, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy, you have no sense of needing God, so happy that you're tempted to feel like his claims upon your life are actually an interruption. If you remember yourself to turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will find that God will welcome you with open arms. But go to him when you need is desperate. When all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, the sound of a bolting, a double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. Might as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might, it might just be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is God such a present commander in our time of joy and very absent in our time of trouble? I tried, Lewis Rice, to, to share some of these thoughts with a friend. And he reminded me that the same thing happened to the Christ on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know that, Lewis says, but it doesn't make it any easier to understand. Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God, Lewis writes. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not so there's no God after all, but so, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Those of us who are Christians move into life's hard experiences with all sorts of expectations, like Lewis. We read in Isaiah 49 that our name is written on God's hand and our reward is with the Almighty. And then a text like this morning, Isaiah 40, 31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain you strength they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and they will not get tired and they will walk and not become weary. The prophet declares to those in Babylonian exile, wait on God, hopeful waiting. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 through chapter 55, 
The prophet tries to answer the questions, the hard questions that he knows the exiles will ask while they're in Babylon, when they're out of the land of God. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? While they're in captivity, even in Babylon, they're going to say, God doesn't notice me anymore. God doesn't care about the hardships I'm going through. God's checked out. We're not in his land. Don't feel like we're his people anymore. God's vision and God's notice, well, it's not on us. Verse 28 and 29, the prophet says, that's not so. Look at verse 28. Do you not know... Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. What he's telling them is, God has neither forsaken you. God has not forgotten you. Why, God is never weak, and God is never weary, and God knows your situation, and God will do something about it. And then he asks us in verse 31, wait, wait for the Lord. To wait on God is not simply to mark time Rather, is to live in the confident expectation of God's deliverance. The idea of hopeful waiting, to call to wait on God of the ages, and his plan will gain strength to rise above the moment. We will not tire, we will not grow faint, but we will go on and on. And the, the figure of the eagle's wings is so apt. The eagle soars and is borne aloft, not by the flapping of his powerful wings, but rather the wind's currents lifting up his rigid pinions. Just, though, just so those waiting for Yahweh are prepared in his time and in his way. But notice, when God finally arrives, we don't always fly. Sometimes we run. And we don't always run. Sometimes we even walk. How does God keep his promises to his people? How does he break into human affairs? There's not one way that God works. He's reminding us in verse 31, but several. Hayden Robinson took this passage and identified three ways that God works. First of all, by direct intervention. By direct intervention, sometimes we soar like eagles. One of the ways that God keeps his promises to us is what we call the intervention of God. And this model, what God does is he reaches down and he removes us from the difficult situation or he takes the situation away from our lives. It's usually the word miracle that we use, that, that God has rescued us or he's taken away the situation from our lives. It's the intervention of God with his people. If we were thinking about a biblical example for this one, we would say 
the book of Exodus chapter 14. That passage, the Israelis have left Egypt. They're confronted by a huge body of water. In front of them is a deep red sea. Behind them is Pharaoh's army and they're stuck. Moses lifts his staff and says, behold, the deliverance of your Lord. And the water stands like walls to the left and to the right. And God's people cross through the sea on dry land. With the chariots, the Egyptians try to fall, follow them. The, the water comes crashing down. The wheels are stuck in the mud and they drown and God's people are delivered. It was a miraculous intervention by God on the behalf of his people. It was a miracle. In fact, it was so important to the faith of the, the Jews at any time a psalmist or a prophet saw that they were losing faith, any time he would remind them that you passed through the sea on dry land and Pharaoh failed him and God delivered you. You are his people. You're the people of that miracle, he reminds the Jews. You want to see it in the New Testament? Think about so many stories like Luke 18. There's a man blind. When he hears the Messiah is coming, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus just stops the parade and says, what do you want me to do? And he says, I want to see. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. There's no going to the ophthalmologist. There's no mud or putty on the eyes and a progression of the miracle like we see at other times. Rather, Jesus just says, you are well And he is. No doubt in my mind in the past that God has divinely done miracles to intervene from his people, removing them from the situation or else taking the situation away. And that's real. It's the way we usually think about God working in our lives. Maybe it goes all the way back to our infancy. You know, you're a baby in the crib and you're hungry and you just shout out and some big being comes and sticks a bottle in your mouth and you're delivered. You cry and you are delivered or you sole your diaper and it's not comfortable and you just cry out and here comes that big creature again and just lifts you up and makes you all well again. And maybe that's the only way we see God working. And maybe we've been to church all of our lives because the church has a good PR department to make God look good. And all the way through Sunday school and church, we hear about the marvelous miracles of God on behalf of his people. And we figure if he did it for them, won't he surely do it for us? And I don't think it's wrong to pray and expect for miracles. In fact, I know for a fact I went around this room and said, tell me sometime that God has intervened and worked in your life, starting with me. I would have a story and you would too. Nothing wrong. God still works that way. The testimonies would fill the room. We'd be here till church begins tonight. It's not wrong to expect a miracle, but it is misleading to think that's the only way that God works for disillusionment is a child of illusions. And if you live with that kind of illusion, you'll find that you'll still go through life's pain, with, but with a badly damaged faith. So there's 
Yes, there's the intervention of God. But secondly, sometimes it's not flying. Sometimes it's running. I would call that the interaction with his people. There are other ways that God keeps his, his promises. Not only is there the intervention of God, but also there's what we would call the interaction of God. And this model, God doesn't perform a miracle, but in this model, God reaches down and empowers us to make a difference in our own situation, the interaction of God through his people. Well, let's stick in Exodus to find an example of this one. Move back to Exodus chapter 3. Moses saw that the, the Israel, his people, were captive to the Egyptians. And as young men have done for centuries, he resorted to violence to try to make a difference. He slew an Egyptian. He thought maybe, maybe he thought that Israel would rise up and overthrow the Egyptians, but instead they threw him out. And Moses had to leave Egypt and go to the Midian Desert and there he spends a long time being a simple shepherd of sheep in the desert. Somebody said you could summarize Moses' life in three 40-year periods, and, and I think that's right. Three acts, the first 40 years, he was in Pharaoh's courts. He was Pharaoh's daughter. He is a somebody for 40 years. The second 40 years, he was a shepherd. He was a, a nobody. And then the last 40 years when God calls him back to Egypt, God demonstrates what he can do with a somebody who finally realized he's a nobody. Moses, something of a midlife crisis, he sees the burning bush and he goes down to check it out. And God says, my people are miserable in Egypt. And I have heard their cry. And Moses thinks, yeah, 400 years they've been crying. It's about time. And, and then Moses thinks to himself, God's about to really do it. This is going to be the big one we've all been waiting for. And God's going to do one big miracle. And we're going to go free. And it'll be a parade. It'll be a time of joy. And God will look after his people. And the Egyptians will be crushed down. And, and God did do that. God says, Moses, I've heard their cry, and you're going to do that. But I'll go with you. I'll work with you. And Moses, the Hebrew of Exodus 3, responds, you've got to be kidding. I know those guys. I went to prep school with them. You think two million Jews are going to walk away from slavery? It's not going to happen. And God says, yes, it's going to happen, and you're going to lead, and I'll be with you, and... You remember all the excuses. And in the end, God worked and Moses worked and the Jews worked. They became co-laborers with God. It was the interaction of God with his people. Sometimes you have those friends who think God works three miracles for them every single day. It's not really my favorite spiritual personality. I mean, they could go to Walmart and they would say, you know, I prayed for a parking space and I came around the corner and there's one in the front row and God has delivered me. Saturday morning at Walmart might be a miracle. You know, it's hard to say, but, <laughs> but, but those personalities really do get tiresome, don't they? People are always looking for that miracle. And sometimes God does do that miracle. And sometimes he agrees to work with us if we'll work with him. 
If we don't, the task is never completed. That seems like the second way seems like risky business to me for God to work that way. We've got Bible school this week. We've got 12 to 1300 kids coming. We've got four to 500 workers coming, but they've worked for months and prepared and decorated and taught and got the music ready. And VBS is us working with God. Not God intervening and doing a miracle and putting all of his stories in the kids' hearts. He is working with us and through us. It's the miracle. There's a third way that God works. The interaction of God. Sometimes you soar and sometimes you run. And in this one, all you can do is walk. Yes, sometimes God works through divine intervention. And sometimes God works through interaction, co-working with his people. And sometimes God works through interaction, the interaction of God. During those times in our life, the miracle doesn't come. God didn't even give us the strength to work our way through it with him. God leaves us pretty much where we are and who we are and our circumstances, the inner action of God. These times are the most painful. These times are when it's hard to wait on the Lord. We may wake some morning and feel as if God seems so distant so absent. Our, our prayers, they're not a dialogue anymore. Now they've become a monologue. We're the only one talking. And our problems look insurmountable to us. And God seems so silent at the very time we need him to talk. And so the prophet comes to us this morning and God, and the prophet says, wait on the Lord, hopeful waiting. Sarah Doudney says in a poem, there are days of silent sorrow in the seasons of our life. There are wild despairing moments. There are hours of mental strife. There are times of stony anguish when the tears refuse to fall, but the waiting time, my brother, the waiting time is the hardest time of all. We can bear the heat of conflict, though the sudden crushing blow beating back our gathered forces for a moment makes us low. We may rise again beneath it, none weaker for the fall, but the waiting time, my brothers, is the hardest time of all. We had to pick a model for this one. It would be Paul in 2 Corinthians. Paul has something in his life that he calls his thorn in the flesh, and we don't know what it is. Some say it's malaria. I think it's his eyesight. Can't be sure. Whatever it is, Paul prays once. Paul prays twice. Paul prays three times. God, take this thorn from me. I have so much to do for your kingdom. I have all the responsibility of all the churches. Please take this thorn away from me. He, Paul pleads with God. And God said, no, no, no. 
My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. And my power is most glorified in your weakness. And God doesn't do a miracle for Paul. And God didn't allow Paul to use his own strength to fix it. God just left Paul where he was in his life and did something beautiful through it. A few moments ago, I I quoted Isaiah chapter 40 where Isaiah says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now, some critics say that Isaiah messed up the poetry, that you ought to start walking, and then you ought to start running, and then you ought to fly. I don't think so. I think Isaiah got it just right. Isaiah knew exactly what he was doing. They who wait upon the Lord renew their strength and sometimes because of God's intervention, they will mount up with the wings of eagles and they'll be carried above their circumstances and they'll be able to dance amongst the clouds. And other times it will be an interaction with God in which they will, they will run and not be weary. And other times all we can do is walk not grow weary. God is not silent. God is not absent. God in his way, in his time, for our best as it work. We might ask the question like the ancient Israelites are asking, God, why don't you do something? Or like C.S. Lewis asked, God, why don't you do something? Have you not heard? Do you not know that God has done something? No, God has done everything. He sent his son, his only son, Jesus. He himself came and took the suffering and the sorrow of our sin. He put on flesh. He's nailed to the tree. And that one moment he abandoned his own son so he wouldn't have to abandon you. God has done something. He has given us the gift of his only begotten son. What more would you require for your theology to be complete? And now, because God has done everything on Calvary, we can have the peace and the hope and the assurance. And even when we find ourselves waiting on the Lord, we can be helpful. For ancient Israel, who will find herself in a strange land, for those of us who find ourselves in an uncomfortable place. For us 
for all of us who think this morning that God has forgotten us. Hopeful, waiting. Let's pray. Oh God, in this room and watching through TV and live stream, there are a thousand hurts. There are thousands of cries. There are folks this morning, oh God, who need to know that you're still on your throne and you still love them and you still care. We're reminded of the grace you give us through the crucifixion of your son. That no matter what this life might do to us, he has already died for us and with us. And we died through him. And yes, just as surely as, as he died, he's already been made alive. The tomb is empty. And ultimately, therefore, we don't have to be afraid of anything. God, not only thank you for doing something, thank you for doing the greatest thing and letting us join the story of your son to die with him and to rise with him. And in the meantime, oh God, while so many of us find ourselves hopefully waiting, may we be reminded by Isaiah that you're a good God. You love us and you know what's best, even when it hurts. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.